Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And if you would also rise as we honor the public reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Here this evening, I'm going to be looking at the first 21 verses. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me, and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of, uh, is the, Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long, that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how we we do plead with you that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. Lord, help us through the gospel to see that your, your law, your commandments are not a burden to us, that they are good to it. They are good for us. They show forth, Lord, even the grace that you have given to us, 
in that, Lord, you have revealed to us what is pleasing to you. And for that, Lord, we are very grateful that you did not leave us in the dark. You did not leave us simply to our own consciences, which very often err when they do not have your word to guide them. And so, Lord, we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the commands which you have given to us, that we might know what we must do in this life to live a godly life before you. And we pray, Lord, that you would even fill us with your spirit and give us the obedience to the commands which you have revealed to us. For, Lord, we ask all these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We come here this evening to a passage that is quite familiar and that is quite foundational to everything in the Bible itself. The Ten Commandments, of course, is what I'm speaking of. This is commandments which you probably learned when you were a kid, if you were growing up in the church. It's a part of basically every major creed uh, or every major confession of faith, there's usually some sort of exposition of the Ten Commandments. Uh, no, it's no different for us in the Reformed tradition. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, over 40 of the questions, 40 of the 107, are devoted to an exposition in one way or another uh, of the Ten Commandments. There's really no need to go even any further to describe to you how foundational these are. This is really the summary of what our duty is to God It's a summary of everything that God would have us to do such that if we are keeping these commandments, we are fulfilling what God has required of us. Now, because these these, uh, commandments are, of course, so foundational, very often um, you'll find people when they preach through this will take one a week and they'll spend an entire week on each each commandment. I'm actually going to try to get through all 10 this evening. And the reason for that is is because, as I mentioned last week, with the flow of Deuteronomy and the way that the book of Deuteronomy itself is organized, uh, after we get past Deuteronomy chapter 5, remember we had a a new section that began at the end of chapter 4 last week, the rest of Deuteronomy all the way through chapter 26 is patterned after the Ten Commandments, such that we can say that in some ways there's no need for me to take one week for each command because... Um, the rest of Deuteronomy is an exposition of the Ten Commandments, which, which we will see. Um, and so because of that, this is so, sort of like a, a primer on the rest of Deuteronomy as we will have it. And so we're going to look at this passage just under two simple headings. First, we're going to look at the prologue to the Ten Commandments, which is given in the first five verses. And then we're going to look at the Ten Commandments themselves. And one of the things that we're going to notice as we look at the commandments and even the way Moses puts them, relates them to uh, the recounting of what happened at Mount Sinai at the beginning of chapter 5, is that the commandments themselves are always rooted in the grace of God, which is to say that we are to obey the commandments of God because of grace that has been received. It's something that Moses emphasizes over and over again. It's embedded in the logic of the commandments themselves. And even in the way Moses presents it with, again, the way in which he recounts uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, we see the, the, the same things, that our obedience to the law is always to be a response to the grace that has been shown to us. And for the, for the people of God in the Old Testament, that was the grace that God showed in redeeming them out of Egypt. And for us, it's the grace that has been shown Uh, by God in his redemption uh, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So let's consider first these first five verses, which is uh, the context to the Ten Commandments. Um, you could call it the, the narrative prologue uh, to the giving of the Ten Commandments, where Moses recounts for us what it was that happened. And this is really the first five verses there. It's, it's really sermonic in form. Moses is trying to uh, show the people of God the great privilege that they have as being the part, uh, the people of God who are alive today, alive in the day that Moses is speaking with them, and the great privilege that they have to have received these commandments from God himself. Notice particularly in verses 2 and 3, after Moses calls the people to hear him in verse 1, Moses in verses 2 and 3, he makes this contrast between the people of God and the fathers. Notice what he says. He says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. So again, now we're quick recounting this. Uh, the what happened at Sinai to the people who are there standing before him that day. And he says, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. There's this, this strong emphasis, this strong contrast between those who are alive in the hearing of Moses as they stand on the edge of the Jordan and are about to go into the promised land. There is this contrast between them and those who died, particularly the fathers, which in, in the context is those who died in the wilderness. The fathers who died in the wilderness. Moses is saying, you know, in some ways, this covenant was not made with them, but it's made with you. All of the promises that were given in the covenant are now about to be fulfilled as you go into the land. And you are the ones who heard the voice of God from heaven. You received these commands. And now the fruition of all the promises are going to be yours. It was not made with your fathers, but it was made with you. You are the ones who benefit from all of these things. Now, it's a strange thing to say in some ways because those who died in the wilderness did actually hear the voice of God from heaven. They did not receive the promises. And in some ways, it's the same people. Why is it that Moses uses this language, a strong contrast? Part of the reason is because the people of God are considered as a unity. So even though in some ways, maybe some of the people who are even standing before Moses weren't even there, uh, you know, some of them were born in the wilderness perhaps, uh, but yet they were the ones with whom the covenant was made because the people of God are in fact a unity and there's always, in some sense, with these covenants, an eye towards those who will, in fact, receive the promises. The promises were intended for the generation that was living at the time of Moses. And what Moses is calling the people to then is he's calling the people who are alive at his speaking these words, the words of Deuteronomy. He's calling them to recognize the great privilege that they have being the people who are going to get to cross over and who are going to have uh, all the blessings of uh, this covenant uh, made manifest in their own lives. And because of that, the implication is, there is a greater obligation on this particular people to obey the commandments because of the grace that's been shown to them. They have received greater privilege, and therefore there is a greater obligation for them to keep the law. Now, in some ways, this is greatly amplified for all of us who are here alive today, as I could so put it the way Moses does. Because in some ways, not just 
the other promises, the other covenants that were made with the, with the people of God uh, before Moses, who ended up dying, not having received the things promised, not only is there a sense in which we have received those blessings, but we have actually received the blessings of every single Old Testament covenant that has ever been made. Everyone, everyone has actually died in the Old Testament. They died without having received the promise. They are very much like our fathers in this regard. Our fathers uh, who, who died did not get to receive the things promised. It was not with them that God ultimately made this covenant, but with us, all of us here who are alive today. Something very similar is said, for instance, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, where if you remember that, that passage, uh, the author of Hebrews is just finishing at the end of Hebrews 11. He's just finished recounting all of these great and faithful men and women in the Old Testament who were faithful to God in the midst of great trials and persecutions. And notice what he says here uh, at the very end. He says, in all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So after going through all of this, these great men of faith, all the things that have been done, he ends up saying, there's actually better things for us and not one of them is made perfect apart from us. There was always an eye to, to the actual fulfilling of all these promises. And you, brothers and sisters, are those who receive these blessings far more than just uh, you know, receiving the promises of the Abrahamic covenant uh, as the people of God who were alive in the time of Moses did surely receive, but you receive the, the blessings of even the Davidic covenant, covenant itself with the, the seed who would build the house of God, the great king who would have an everlasting covenant, an everlasting kingdom, bringing in the kingdom of God. You receive the benefits of the new covenant spoken of uh, by the prophet Jeremiah, that the from the least to the greatest that they would all know the Lord, that they would have their sins forgiven. These are yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you remember when we were going through First uh, Peter chapter 1, the way in which Peter there was trying to stir up uh, the, the, the Christian church to know what their privileges were, he said that when we think back even to all the prophets, it was revealed to them as they labored to know even something of what would come with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were serving you. There was always an eye towards the fulfilling of the promise, and you are those who receive that fulfillment. They, they were serving you with all that they were doing. Many of those to whom they were speaking would die, and even a lot of them would die being unbelievers. They would never receive the promises. But all these things were service to you who would, in fact, receive it. And this is what, what Moses is saying here. It was not with them. It's with you. You are the ones who get to receive this promise. And therefore, therefore, you must obey these promises, these, these commandments. This law has an even greater obligation on you. And brothers and sisters, if that's the case for them and the, who are alive in the time of Moses, far more is it true for you. This is the way in which, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, that the law and the gospel do, in fact, sweetly comply. It does sweetly comply. You have been given a greater salvation, and it is salvation that is the ultimate foundation for all obedience to the law. Such it was in the days of Moses, and so it is now. Now, 
In verses 4 and 5, Moses recounts the way in which God spoke directly to the people of God out of the, out of the fire. Now, the only thing that they heard was the Ten Commandments. That was, that was the great thing, uh, that they heard from, uh, from the mountain as there was the, the thunder and the earthquakes and, and all of those things and the great terror and the way that the Lord appeared to the people. They heard the Ten Commandments and they heard nothing else. You remember in, uh, Exodus chapters 21 through 23 or 20 to 23, all of that is law. But it was only the Ten Commandments given in chapter 20 that the people of God heard. Now, in the rest of it, as Moses says here in uh, verse 5, he talks about the way in which he mediated the law to the people. That was the rest of the law was mediated through Moses. Now, I'm not going to say too much about that. This is actually something that Moses returns to in the the second part of Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. So we'll look at it next week, where there's a a great theology given about... uh, what it means to have a mediator mediate the law and the importance uh, of that. But note, Moses touches on it here in verses 4 and 5. And so with that, having spoken of the great privileges that are the people of God's, particularly those whom Moses is speaking to now, those who did not die in the wilderness, and having told them about, reminded them about the way in which God spoke directly with them out of the midst of the fire, now he gives the Ten Commandments, which we see in verses 6 to 21. Now, as you'll know, the Ten Commandments are broken up into two main parts. There is the first table of the law and the second table. The first table deals with our our obligation of obedience to God, for particularly with regard to our relationship to him. And the second table of the law deals with our relationship to other people, which is still indirectly related to our service to God, of course. Uh, you, If we break the second table of the law... We have in some ways defiled or dishonored the God. We've dishonored the God who has made these people in his image whom we have sinned against. And so the first table is primarily outlining our duty towards God. And the second table primarily outlining our duty to man. Now notice as well in verse 6 we have what's often called the preface to the Ten Commandments. And here we see the same thing that I mentioned with regard to verses 1 to 5 in the, in the sort of the narrative prologue to the Ten Commandments. That all of our obedience to the law of God is rooted in salvation. It's, in, it's rooted in the grace which we have received. Notice the very first thing that's said before any commandment is given. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the house of bondage. One thing that's very often said about, uh, particularly about the letters of Paul and the way in which commandments are structured in the, in the New Testament is that there's usually an indicative that's followed by an imperative. If you don't quite remember your uh, grammatical terms, what they mean, an indicative is just a statement about something that uh, is or isn't true. It's just a statement that's made, of course, in the, in the, in the Bible, it's a, a true statement, something that God has in fact done, and then that is followed by the command. And that's because the command is always rooted in the thing which God has done. Because God has saved you, therefore, you must keep the commandments of God. Christ has died for your sins, therefore, you must obey him. The indicative is always always precedes the imperative. And here, the same thing is true. Notice, before there's any commandment that's given, there is the great statement of salvation. And again, this is the greatest act of salvation that the people of God would ever experience in the Old Testament. That God has redeemed the people of God out of slavery to Egypt. 
And that great act of redemption, which was to be the pattern of all salvation that follows even the salvation that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that great act of salvation is the foundation for everything that follows. You are to obey because of the grace which God himself has shown to you. Now, with that in mind, then, there is then the first table of the law, which uh, comprises the first four commandments. Now, sometimes it can be difficult to see the way in which these commandments relate to one another. And in this way, sometimes it can be uh, a benefit to go through the commandments a bit more quickly so you can see how they how they do hold together. If we were to ask, if you were to ask, in, in what way are the first four commandments related to one another? And in what way do they paint a complete picture of what our duty to God is? The answer would be this. The first commandment teaches us who we are to worship. The second commandment teaches us what we are to do in worship. The third commandment teaches us how our heart should be in worship. And the fourth commandment teaches us when we are to worship. And if you put that all together, you have a complete picture of what it looks like to love God. It looks like true worship, that you would worship the true God in the true way, with a true heart, and at the time that he is appointed. That is what it looks like to love God, that we'd worship the true God in the true way, with a true heart in the time, the true time that he has set apart for the worship of his name. And so really worship is the foundation for uh, all of our obligation to God. It is the, the great summary of what it looks like to love God and a summary of the first table. Now, as we look a bit more closely at the first commandment, in, in many ways, this first commandment is really the foundation for all of the other commandments. Uh, it's the 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 great uh, the great foundation such that if you are to if you were to break any of the other commandments uh, in in to such a degree that it is no longer credible that you actually do believe in God, it would then constitute a breaking of the first commandment. The breaking of the first commandment is really the the great sign of apostasy. If you do if you have another God other than God, then you've broken the first commandment and you are outside of salvation. And all other commandments, in some ways, can are forgiven until it becomes a violation of the first commandment to such a degree that it's no longer credible that God is, in fact, your God. In this way, the first commandment is related to all of the other commandments. You must have the true God as your God. It is a foundation, a summary uh, of all of the commandments which follow. Now, notice as well, as we continue to think about the way in which the commandments are related to the grace of God and the salvation that we have in God— that really faith is absolutely necessary for the keeping of the first commandment. You cannot have the true God as your God if you do not believe in him. If if God is not your God, then you do not have faith and you've broken the first commandment. There is no way to keep, therefore, really any of the commandments without faith because all of them rest upon the first commandment in one way or another, faith is the basic ingredient for obedience to the gospel. And remember, this is even what what Paul says in Romans fourteen verse twenty three, when he says that whatever is whatever does not come from faith is sin. Whatever does not come from faith is sin. And remember, in First John, we we know that sin is defined as lawlessness. With if it doesn't come from faith, then it must be sin. And uh, because sin is lawlessness, then the only way to keep the law has to be by faith. There is, there's no other way to do it. Now, if you were to ask, what must you believe? It is uh, the indicative of the first 
of the preface itself. You must believe in the God who has saved his people. You must believe in that God. For the Old Testament believers, it was the God of the Exodus. In the New Testament, it is the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has worked a great salvation in him. That, that is the thing that must be believed. And on the basis of that belief, you must have the one true God as your God. Now, that's an overview very quickly of the first commandment. Again, there'll be much more to say about this uh, in the weeks to come. Looking at the second commandment. The second commandment has to do with uh, the way in which we worship, what we do in worship. The first commandment, if we were to distinguish the first and the second commandment, often there's confusion about, about this. The first commandment is who we worship. We are to have no other gods. The second one says we are not to worship that true God by means of idolatry. We're not to make any idols of him, and we are not to bow down to idols in worship. That's the distinction between uh, the first two commandments. And if you were to ask, if, if the scriptures teach us that we're not to make idols, what positively are we to do? The answer to that is we must obey his word. We must do the things in worship which God himself has instructed us to do. There's no other way to worship God. Anything that we do in worship that is not found in the scriptures is an invention of men, and therefore it must be idolatry. The whole point of idolatry is that it's worshiping God through things which have been made by the hands of men themselves. It doesn't matter whether or not it's your physical hands that are doing it or the hands of your mind, so to speak, if you uh, come up with it in your mind. Anything that we do that is not found in the word of God must have its source or its origin in the mind of men and therefore must be an idol. And so with the people of God in the Old Testament, the temptation was always to worship God, the one true God, in the way in which the nations around them worshiped their gods. That was the way the temptation worked. And so there was a temptation to make physical idols as the nations around them made physical idols. In our day, in some ways, in some, in, in some traditions, it's the same temptation. In other ways, though, we have a similar kind of temptation in that in our day, there is a, a similar temptation to worship God in the way that all of the nations around us or the world around us uh, worships their gods or the way in which the world around us seeks uh, its own gain or advantage. So think of, of the way in which uh, many uh, churches or traditions will try to tailor their worship to uh, the entertainment styles of the world, where there is uh, a, a, the idea that if we do not conform to the world in the way that the world entertains itself in our worship, that nobody will come. It's a very similar kind of temptation to what Israel was under was was facing with regard to the second commandment. All the nations around us are doing it this way. We ought to do it this way too. All the nations around us, all the people around us, uh, entertain themselves in this way. We ought to do that too so that they will uh, come and enjoy the worship of God. Ultimately, though, the worship of God must be based upon the word and upon the word itself. Now, the third commandment, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, this is referring to much more than simply using the name of God in an irreverent way, which it is more than that, but it's not less than that. So we need to be careful with the, with the way in which we speak. Uh, the, the, the name of God ought never to be a curse word that we use when we're frustrated. Uh, that is an irreverent use of the name of God. But the principle that leads, that 
shows us that that is sin applies in very many other places. And that's because you, as a Christian, are someone who bears the name of God, and you are therefore a part of God's people, and your life must reflect this reality. And so particularly in worship, when you bear the name of God, the question is, is, is do you bear that name in vain? Do, do you bear that name in such a way that your actions show that you dishonor God's name even as you bear it? Do you, do you speak of him irreverently? Do you come to worship with your heart in other places? All of this would be to bear the name of God uh, in vain, particularly with worship. The, always the most aggravated way these commandments can be broken is with regard to worship. If you come to worship and your heart is on other things, you have no desire really to worship God as you come. You have broken the third commandment. Everything that we do with the name of God, when the name of God is spoken, there ought to be uh, a response of our heart of, of deepest reverence and love and joy for the name. When, when we hear the name of God and it is something that is simply indifferent to us, we have taken the name of God in vain. Now, the fourth commandment, so we have who we worship, what we do in worship. We don't do it by idols. We do it by the word of God. Third commandment, we don't take the name of the Lord God, our God in vain. We, we come to him with a true heart, with reverence for his name. And the fourth commandment, when we worship, we worship on the day that God is set apart. It's not to say that we can't worship at other times, but it is to say that we must worship on this time. That we can worship any time we want, but we have, we, we have no right to say that we will not worship on this day on the Sabbath day that God himself has set apart. And that's because God himself has made the day holy. Now notice as well, uh, the purpose of the day is not rest. Ultimately, it is, it, it's not for the sake of you recovering your physical strength, though that does happen on the day. Notice the language of the commandment. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Keeping the day holy is really the great principle of the day. It does mean that you rest from all of your labors, but it is resting for the sake of keeping the day holy. Resting so that you can spend the day with God himself. And this means that the most important thing that you can do to keep the day holy is in fact uh, attending and the public worship and worshiping God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is the, the highest part, the, the most important aspect of the Lord's Day is the public worship of God's name. And this is why it's, it's far more important than even resting. Far more important than resting is your presence at the public worship of God's name. And even our understanding of uh, keeping the entire day holy is part of the reason why uh, in the Reformed tradition, there's always been a, a morning and an evening worship service, such that the, the day itself can be bookended in worship. You bookend the entire day in worship such that then you are able then to keep the entire day holy. Notice as well with the fourth commandment that in the fourth commandment, there is a special way in which heads of the households are commanded to obey the command. Ultimately, it is the fathers of a household that are being commanded to keep the Lord's day. And they are commanded to keep it in such a way that they enable everyone else around them to keep it. So, so that there is really a special obligation and responsibility for everyone who is a father in a household to keep the Lord's Day. If you break it, if you break the Lord's Day, if you break the fourth commandment, 
In some ways, you have also you have also made it more difficult for everyone else in the house to keep the Lord's Day. As you keep it, you make it easier on everyone else to keep the Lord's Day. And so notice that the responsibility. It is you are to, to do no work on it, nor is your son, so that would be the, the son of the father of the household who's being addressed, or your daughter, or your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox. Everyone is to get a break. Everyone who's under you must get a break. There is a special obligation in the fourth commandment, particularly directed to those who are the heads of households, that they are to keep the commandment in such a way that then everyone else in their household can keep the commandment as well. This is also the reason why, typically in, in Reformed teaching, we understand that not only are we to abstain from work, but we're also not to do anything that would cause others to work. You are not to refrain from work in such a way that you cause your son to work. That would be a violation of the fourth commandment. You are not to work, nor is your son to work. Even your ox, you are to labor in such a way that even they do not have to work. You're to labor in such a way that even your male servant or your female servant is not forced to work. And so this is why then the principle being applied to our own day, it would be wrong then for you to say, go to a restaurant and order out food and cause that person to work. It'd be a violation of this very principle. You've rested, but your resting has actually caused other people to break the fourth commandment as well. Whereas the principle is, is that so far as it depends on you, you are to make it easier on everybody to keep this commandment that the day might be kept holy to the Lord. Now, Another thing about the fourth commandment, notice there's actually a small difference between the fourth commandment as it's given in Exodus and the fourth commandment as it's given in Deuteronomy. In Exodus, the purpose, the reason for keeping the, for the, the, the fourth commandment is creation. Because God has created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, therefore you are to keep the seventh day holy. However, here with the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy, it's not creation that the people of God are to remember, but rather redemption. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, because of redemption, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Because of redemption now, you are to keep the seventh day holy. So there's both of these reasons that are given in the scriptures. First, in Exodus chapter 20, there is creation. And then secondly, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there is redemption. Both of these uh, reasons are the foundation for our worshiping God, particularly on the Lord's Day. And it is really this reason. It's for this reason as we think of creation and redemption being the foundation for our public worship of God and the particular day that we set aside. It's recognizing that these are the reasons which are given in Scripture that enables us to see that with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is in fact a day change that's happened with the fourth commandment. It, because with the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly with his resurrection from the dead, we have the beginnings of the new creation to which the old creation pointed, and we have the completion of the new exodus to which the old exodus pointed. So it would be quite strange for us to uh, be living after the time of the coming of Christ and to continue to worship God on the seventh day, remembering the first creation which is passing away and the old exodus which the prophets prophesy that we will forget in light of the coming salvation of Christ and not recognize that the new creation has begun in Christ. The new creation has begun in Christ and the fullness of redemption is found in him. 
Because of these things, we must, the, the, the day must be patterned after the realities of what's begun in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, for instance, in Colossians chapter 2, that we are not to let anyone judge us with regard to new moons or festivals or Sabbaths, even Sabbaths. Because Sabbath, the seventh day in particular, is tied to Old Testament realities that are shadows of the things which have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate the the beginning of better things with the Lord's Day, the day where we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the those are the first four commandments, the first table of the law. Our detailing our duty to God, what it looks like to love the Lord our God with all our with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. We are to worship him, worshiping the true God in the way that he is has commanded us with true hearts and on the day that he has set aside for that. Now the second uh, table has six commandments, but it's actually shorter than the first table, as I'm sure that you're aware. Uh, and the summary of the second table is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You are to love others who have been made in the image of this God who is giving the law. Now, it's very, a very great um, coincidence, so to speak, providence of the Lord, that uh, we were reading Leviticus chapter 19, just reading straight through uh, the Pentateuch as we've been doing for some time, that we came to Leviticus 19 on this day when we were actually going through uh, the Ten Commandments as well. Because Leviticus 19 is all about our duty towards one another. And uh, even rooting it in the nature of God, you are to do these things because God is God is holy. And it's there in Leviticus 19 that we have uh, the famous summary of the entire law, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, all of these commandments, as we think of uh, loving other people as uh, as we are to love ourselves, all of them flow out of the first table. There are in very many ways related, and particularly, as I mentioned, to the first commandment. So, for instance, this is why in Romans chapter 1, it is when humankind, it's when uh, humanity decided to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, when they gave up having the true God as their God, that God then gave them over to all of these other sins that are found in the second table. There's always a relationship between not having God as your God and then being given over to all of these other sins that we find uh, in the second table, the breaking of the, the commandments of the second table. And so these that's what binds these two uh, sets of commandments together. Now notice here, the fifth commandment is related to the way in which we behave towards authority figures, particularly uh, what Moses speaks of is the way in which we treat our parents. So those of you who are our children and who are here, it is it is God's will for you to obey your parents. You must listen to your mom and you must listen to your dad. But this this commandment goes far beyond just that. It's really related to any authority structure that we have, which is actually um, important as we look at the, even the structure of Deuteronomy, as we'll see when we come to it, uh, probably in months. But when we come to it, we'll see that uh, even as I mentioned that Deuteronomy is structured such that the the order of the rest of the explication of the laws follows out of the Ten Commandments. When we get to the the order re- with regard to the Fifth Commandment, it's always it's actually related in Deuteronomy to um, the way in which we the way in which the people of God are related to their prophets and their priests and their judges. That that's that's the way in which uh, Deuteronomy is 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 uh, applying the Fifth Commandment, so to speak, and so. The idea of the fifth commandment is any authority structure that there is, where you have an obligation to submit, you must submit in those cases. 
And anytime that you find yourself in authority, you must make it easy on those who are under you to submit. I had mentioned that in many ways, I think this is one of the, the areas where we're finding, uh, in, particularly with all the strife and lack of civility within our country, uh, all of the, the chaos that seems to be coming everywhere, a lot of it is a, a revealing that we are unable to submit to those who are in authority. That is uh, very much, I think, uh, a problem uh, that's going on today. Now, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, of course, covers uh, taking the life of another person. As the Lord Jesus Christ has interpreted in Matthew chapter 5, it also includes uh, hatred towards others. You are not to bear any hatred towards any other person. And it's important here to recognize, um, to point out, I think, the ways in which our culture is breaking this commandment uh, in particularly grievous ways. I think for today, in our own in our own day, the worst way in which the sixth commandment is being violated is with abortions. Uh, in 2017, I was just amazed to find this as I was looking into these things, preparing for this sermon. 18% of all pregnancies ended in abortions, not including miscarriages or anything. 18% of pregnancies in 2017 ended in abortions. And 23% of women in our country before the age of 45 will have an abortion. Almost a quarter of all the women in this country by the time they turn 45 will have had an abortion where uh, the child... Uh, their own child has been put to death uh, because of their decisions. It's really uh, quite a despicable thing. And um, it's something that we need to keep in mind. We need to be particularly attuned to the ways in which uh, the violation of God's commandments are being normalized. And we as Christians need to stand uh, against it. The seventh commandment, I'll go a bit quickly through these last four. The seventh commandment, of course, covers any violation of any sexual ethics that are found uh, in the scriptures. Sex is, of course, to be confined to marriage. Uh, today, we have epidemics of pornography, uh, homosexuality, promiscuity, even those you know outside of the homosexuality thing. Promiscuity is quite a big problem. There are very few people outside of the church, I think, who would find promiscuity to be uh, in any ways uh, a violation of, of any kind of ethic. And so the seventh commandment, we are not to commit adultery. The eighth commandment, not taking anything that is rightfully belonging to another, whether it be property or something you owe them, some something you must do for another person, not just physical things. As the Westminster Larger Catechism has said, this covers fraudulent dealings, false weights and measures, removing landmarks and injustice and unfaithfulness and contracts between man and man or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexations, lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depredation, and engrossing commodities to enhance the price making things look worse or actually making them worse to get a better price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves. Any Anything like that would be a violation of the Eighth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment deals with deception, the way in which we uh, treat our neighbor's name. We, uh, we defame them. Particularly, this has to do with the way in which our lack of truth affects another person. It's sometimes very easy to think ourselves to be highly honest people, but then when it comes to our need to speak something that will uh, cause others to see us more negatively, very often that's that where the temptation is, to bend the truth so those would not think of us so poorly. Remember the standard given in Psalm 15 is that the man is blessed who swears to his own hurt. He says something, 
whether it hurts him in any way, he will fulfill what he said. That's that's what it means to keep the ninth commandment. And again, we see uh, very little, um, very little value given to truth today um, in the public sphere, as this this commandment is routinely bro- broken uh, in our day. Uh, in the tenth commandment, in the tenth commandment, is related to any desire for anything that, that that does not belong to us. It's broken up into two parts here, particularly with regard to wives. And then with regard to neighbors' houses, fields, and everything else uh, that is uh, our neighbors. This command is the first one that's specifically inward. All the commandments are inward, but this is um, explicitly inward, so to speak. And really, the way in which uh, our coveting manifests itself in this life is by breaking all of the other commandments of the second table. Uh, When you find yourself coveting, it will in some ways manifest itself in either stealing not being truthful in adultery, if it's aggravated, or even in murder. It is coveting that that really begins the process, the downward uh, spiral of breaking these various commandments. And so, I know this was a very quick run-through and summary of, of all of the commandments, but this is the, the duty that God has given to his people. Summarizes the Lord Jesus Christ has said that you ought to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And now here's the wonderful beauty of the gospel, is that though you could not keep the law because of sin, Christ has saved you anyway. And he saved you really with regard to the law in two ways. He has removed the curse from you by taking that curse upon himself and in his death imputing his own righteousness to you so that now, even though you are in some ways a lawbreaker, you are counted as a law keeper. The curse is removed from you and Christ's righteousness is yours. But also, you are also saved with respect to the law in that God has not only given you a legal standing so that you are a law keeper, but now in Christ as well, he has given you a new heart so that now you can also be one who grows in obedience to the law. You're not just counted as a law keeper, but you can grow as a law keeper. This is one of the, the great blessings of, of the gospel, which we've seen that Moses has spoken of, even in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He's going to come back to it in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that in the, the last days, when uh, the people of God turn away from him, he will give them new hearts. He will circumcise their hearts so that they will not turn away from him anymore. There is this, this dual blessing with regard to the law, that God in Christ will count you as righteous in his sight and he will enable you by his grace to continue to grow in obedience to the law of God. And so it's important as we think of these commandments and as we go through a quick overview, it's very easy to look at these and say, you know, in very many ways I've not kept this and I've not kept this, I've not kept this. But it's important for us never to have a defeatist attitude when it comes to our sanctification. We're never to have a defeatist attitude. We are to recognize that we do sin. We'll, we'll daily break these in thought, word, and deed, as, as the, the catechism says. And yet, we must expect and pray to God, believing that he will, in fact, help us to improve, that he will, in fact, help us to improve. It is one of the great blessings that has been won for us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, with the Old Testament, we have the grace that after the redemption, the law was revealed. In the New Testament, not only is the law revealed after redemption, but even obedience to the law is given and righteousness is given so that we can be counted as righteous in God's sight. Everything has been given such that now the law and the gospel 
really sweetly comply in ways or even even go far beyond what was found uh, in the Old Testament. And so something to keep in mind, particularly as we continue to work through these various commandments and the way in which Moses uh, expounds them, that all of these things are rooted in the grace of God and our obedience to them has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ. May God grant that we would continue to grow in our obedience to him and so bear fruit to the praise of his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for revealing your word to us, for revealing your law to us. We're so thankful that you did not leave us to ourselves, but, Lord, that you did uh, give us these things so that we would know what our duty is towards you. And, Lord, we can say with Augustine that we do desire that you would show us uh, the things that you uh, have decreed, that you would like for us to do. But, Lord, we also pray that you would give us the things which you command that you would give us the obedience. For, Lord, we know it is you who works in us both to will and to act according to your good pleasure. We ask, Lord, that you would do this not for our own sakes, but for yours, that you might have a holy people that uh, that would shine as lights in this world as we hold forth the, the word of life to a lost and dying world. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, please give us a five-star review as this will help make the Word of God preached more available to others. Also, if you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com.